0: Join Dr. Muji, a psychology professor at a university in Ohio, and her daughter, Iyabode, a research scientist in California, on a journey of how to make the most of what life throws your way.
1: We hope to make today's podcast as informative and lighthearted as possible. So sit back and join us on this adventure. All right, mom, how's life? How are you today?
0: Life is great, in spite of all that continues to go on around me. The world continues to grapple with this pandemic. Some would like to use a magic wand so we can get out of this quagmire quickly and return to, quote, normal. But we can't go back to the past normal. We shouldn't want to go back to the past normal. We must be planning for a better, kinder, new normal. We all have opportunities to be the change that we wish to see. I cannot see, and I cannot wait to see, how people, nations, and the world turn out because we have taken this bull, this pandemic, by the horn. And you, Yabode, how is life with you?
1: Life is good. I love that start. It's one that's very inspiring and powerful, and now I'm just going to take it in a completely different direction. And, you know, for me, July is practically fixated on my little brother's birthday. It's his birthday month. He's a July 4th baby. And I have to share this for the sake of our listeners, because I always find it so entertaining when this month rolls around, because growing up in Canada, our parents would constantly remind us of the kind of story surrounding my little brother's birthday or his birth. And they'd always explain how they were so excited that he could potentially be a July 1st baby. And so for our listeners who might not be aware, July 1st is Canada Day. And so they were hoping that he'd be a Canada Day birth that maybe they'd even name him after Canada, as in name him... Canada, which I'm so relieved (laughs) wasn't the case. No offense to any person or anyone whose name might be Canada, but it just sounds so cheesy. Sorry, mom. But it's always so amusing and would always be so hilarious to hear the story growing up of how excited they were about the possibility. And then he was actually born on July 4th and we were still in Canada. So in Canada, that July 4th date isn't of significance or at least the same significance that it is here in the States. And then, of course, they're dealing with this disappointment of, oh, well, we missed the mark by a few days. And then a few years later, we end up moving to the States and July 4th is a national holiday. It's Independence Day. And so he ended up lucking out in that I think my parents got what they wished for and that they have a child whose birthday is celebrated with fireworks every year. And I think that means they have to do less or had to do less for his birthday and that there was already fireworks guaranteed. But every single time that it becomes July, I always think of that story and just have a little laugh, even if it's just with myself, just thinking back to hearing it and how hilarious I found it growing up. Speaking of him, speaking of the birthday boy, He's really a tough one to shop for. And as we've gotten older, and I think for me, after certain events have happened, I've just become a lot more sentimental. And so the gifts that I even tend to get him are just that same way. They're sentimental, they're nostalgic, probably not the most upbeat gift ideas. However, um, that's just the nature of what it's tend to become over the past few years. And he's always so difficult to shop for. He's particular with everything. He always has his preferences. He's also quite minimalistic in that he doesn't really want too much of anything. He wants just the basics in life and appreciates the basics. And so it comes back to the same question of, well, what do you get someone who really doesn't want very much to begin with? So for our listeners out there, if you know anyone who's so finicky in particular, and you have gift ideas, it's too late this year, but for future years, please be sure to send over recommendations, whether it's even just um, you add a reminder on your calendars every June, maybe beginning of June, just add a reminder to reach out to me, send an email and let me know some gift ideas or some suggestions that might be right for that type of person.
0: I love how you shared your brother's uh, birthday or birth story. Very interesting. And I'm sure he would be happy if he (laughs) listens to this podcast that at least you referred to him one way or the other spoke about, you know, the genesis of how he ended up not being Canada with a king.
1: Oh my goodness. Oh, I'm so glad we avoided that. All right. And so for today's topic, it's one that, as my mom has already alluded to at the very beginning of this, with the current social environment, we truly felt it necessary to explore this topic sooner rather than later. And also it's just one that's highly important and critical to better understand and also just fascinating. So we think we could really just have a series of the different types of this topic or the different forms of this topic. But for starters, we'll devote today to better understanding it and digging into those aspects we found to be most interesting and relevant and hope you think the same. So with that said, for today, we're discussing bias, bias as in B-I-A-S. And so mom, why don't you kick us off with helping us understand what exactly a bias is?
0: Okay. A bias is a preference toward or against something. So it could be towards or against an idea, an object, Or it could be toward or against someone, for instance, an individual or a group. A bias can be positive and helpful, but it can be negative and unhelpful. In general, a bias tends to be based on stereotypes, a widely held fixed and oversimplified image or idea, and not on actual knowledge about a thing an individual, or a circumstance. A bias is a shortcut, a cognitive shortcut, which can result in prejudgments leading to questionable decisions and or discriminatory practices.
1: And so what are some causes of the bias that people have?
0: Actually at birth, humans have a few genetically programmed biases. For instance, a positive response to sweet tastes and negative response to bitter and other very strong tastes. Beyond such preferences, however, a bias is often learned. This is because we all are conditioned we all are trained or accustomed to behave in certain ways or accept certain situations. We are conditioned by our parents, religious institutions, schools, the media, and by society as a whole. So starting at a young age, we make a distinction between those like us, these are those that we would refer to as our in-group, and those who are not like us, our outgroup, in quote. There is an advantage to doing this as we gain a sense of identity in terms of who we are and who we are not, and in terms of a sense of safety. But taken to an extreme, this categorization can foster an us versus them mentality and lead to harmful prejudice or preconceived opinion, not based on reason or actual experience.
1: And can a person truly be unbiased? As in, can I describe myself as someone without bias and actually be accurate in doing so?
0: Generally, the answer to your question is a no. We all, including myself, have some degree of bias. It's human nature to be judgmental based on first impressions. Hence, we hear the phrase first impressions matter for good and bad. Although, according to some researchers, first impressions are just that. Last impressions are the ones that actually last. It is human to take certain things and dislike others, although often we are not fully conscious of our prejudice. Unfortunately, unconscious or implicit bias becomes a problem when it causes us as individuals or as a group to treat others poorly because of the other's characteristics. Fortunately, by having knowledge or the awareness of our bias, we can avoid stereotyping, which is our perceptions of other people's character, ability, And potential, and we can avoid acting on harmful prejudice.
1: So it's helpful that you've shared that there's a downstream consequence or impact of having knowledge or awareness of our bias. But in general and overall, what are some consequences of people's bias?
0: At the individual level, bias can negatively have an impact on someone's personal and professional relationships. At a societal level, it can lead to unfair persecution of a group. For example, as it happened during the Holocaust, during slavery, or more recently, the police treatment of some black Americans.
1: And then to that effect, how can someone reduce their bias or potentially just go beyond recognizing that they have this bias and further do something to minimize how they feel and even how they show their bias?
0: Asking people to suppress prejudice usually has the opposite effect. When one bottles up something, we know what happens. It blows up. But people can be trained to notice prejudiced thoughts without repelling them, so they are able to make deliberate choice about how they behave towards others, leading to less discrimination and reduced bias over time, as shown by the works of some cognitive psychologists.
1: And, you know, something I find fascinating are the different forms of bias or the different categories that have been coined and identified and studied by psychologists thus far. And and even taking a moment to refresh my memory of these different categories and types of bias. One that stuck out to me was one that is termed actor-observer bias, and it was particularly intriguing because I genuinely felt as if in reviewing the definition or better understanding the concept, I truly feel as if it's something that could make an impactful difference in how we quote-unquote understand the actions of others. So whether those are other people that we know really well, or they're complete strangers that we see day-to-day in real life, or On our screens, even. And from what I could see, this doesn't pertain to the movies or TV shows, even though it's termed actor observer bias. So, can you help me and our listeners better understand this type of bias? First, it is
0: important to let our listeners know that there are different types of biases, including anchoring bias, attribution bias, confirmation bias, negativity bias optimism and pessimism biases, and many more. To answer your question about actor-observer bias, first introduced back in the 50s, 1950s, by Fritz Heider, as an actor, you are more likely to see your actions to be due to external and situational factors, such as day of the time, the weather, Poor diet, lack of exercise, something outside of our control. While, as an observer, you are more likely to perceive others' actions as due to internal factors like their overall disposition or personality, their motives or thoughts, it's due to their fault.
1: Hmm. So in other words, you're not truly putting yourself in the shoes of others. Or if you believe you are, it's more that when you're wearing your shoes and you step on fecal matter in the streets, you rationalize other external factors as to why you did so. Whereas when you observe someone else doing the same, you wonder why they didn't just look where they were going and avoid it. And this analogy is highly personal and relevant in the Bay Area. When I first visited San Francisco, it was during a West Coast trip with the birthday boy, aka my little brother. And we started in Vancouver, made our way down to San Diego. And San Francisco was just one of the pit stops. It was one of the cities that we stopped to explore and hike in and just really do a lot of sightseeing and basic tourist activities. But when we made a pit stop here, this city was one that we had the takeaway in the same observation that the city is disgusting. It's filthy. And it's such a, contradiction to the beauty of the buildings and the different landmarks that are present here because you become so occupied staring and just looking and taking pictures that you fail to actually look at what you're stepping in or where you're stepping, which is very dangerous in this city. And so our takeaway at the time was just that we couldn't believe how disgusting the streets were, especially in comparison to some of the other large cities on the West Coast. But it's ironic because years later, I then received a job offer out here and moved out (laughs) here. So (laughs) it's funny how it works that the city that we deem disgusting yet beautiful in its own right is the one that I would end up being so this analogy it's very personal I kind of say it understanding that it genuinely is something I have to display and exhibit and understanding the different factors that could contribute to other people perhaps stepping on excrement interesting My mom's looking thinking, oh my goodness, why? (laughs) Why is that the example?
0: It's an excellent example of the phenomenon that we're discussing today.
1: Thank you for humoring me. All right, back to business. So we've already discussed the consequences of bias overall, but what might be the consequences of the actor-observer bias specifically?
0: Actor-observer bias is a type of attributional bias that plays a role in how we perceive and interact with other people. This kind of bias can lead to magical thinking and a lack of self-awareness. We as human beings engage in magical thinking when we make associations between one event, for example, some behavior we performed and an unrelated outcome, for instance, Superstitious behaviors or belief in magic, extrasensory perception, ESP, or some supernatural force. Magical thinking is problematic because we can believe that our actions are due to a magical force instead of being due to us or our social environment. Reliance on magical thinking to explain things leads to self deception or lying to oneself, and a lack of self-insight, or not knowing or understanding oneself.
1: That's so fascinating too. I suppose it's important to distinguish magical thinking from believing in magic, right? That's an important aspect to consider. But another aspect I'm always curious to better understand is the actual individuals or populations that have been studied when researchers have investigated a particular topic. Maybe it's the skeptical side of me that wonders whether it's actually been a varied group or varied enough to actually understand a phenomenon or specific topic. So to that effect, which populations have researchers actually studied bias in?
0: I understand your curiosity and skepticism. Because a bias is highly dependent on variables like a person's or a group's characteristics, researchers have investigated biases in a wide array of populations. These include studies about, quote unquote, the other. Wherever there is an in group versus out group, us versus them, We versus they, for instance, age. Those who are too young, some of us will look at them or perceive them in a particular way versus those who are too old. Other populations have focused on sexual orientation, in which they may be heterosexuals are seeing others, homosexual, bisexual, or it could be in terms of gender identities, maybe a study about female and the sample study are male, or it could be that the sample study will be transgender. We know that um, some studies have looked at race and ethnicities, and beyond that, even in terms of ability versus uh, disabilities. And then a lot of studies have been done based on religious groupings, how one religion perceives or explains the behavior of another religious group. Um, Some population studies have been immigrants. Beyond that, we look at socioeconomic status and economic status such as um, educational level or income level. So again, the bottom line is the idea of the us versus them, we versus they, uh, to the extent that some others will see others as less than they are.
1: I see. And so then aside from the people or the groups in particular, in which settings have they studied bias in?
0: Researchers have studied settings such as various kinds of workplace. So we're talking about schools, hospitals, businesses, and other organizations. Uh, Thus, researchers have investigated populations and settings where judgment of different behaviors occur. Behaviors such as, and ranging from infidelity, prostitution, bad driving, drinking and driving, smoking, dependence on smartphones, belief that humans have free will, attributions regarding many more behaviors. Their findings have shown that actor-observer differences depend on three major characteristics. A, the specific causal factor invoked. B, the individual's history in the situation and see individual differences among attributors. By that, I mean the person's ascribing attributes to others.
1: So it really is just part of our everyday life and of so many institutions. And I think that better highlights to the value of awareness and the role that we can potentially play in almost checking our bias and in understanding and better acknowledging the difference in other actor experiences as observers and You know, this might seem very obvious. I almost feel as if I'm that student who, after the professor is given this detailed lecture, I then am asking, wait, what's the subject? What class am I in? But regardless, I'm going for it. So how much does the likeness or presence of similarities in the other person matter when it comes to actor-observer bias?
0: As I regularly tell students who ask questions during my lectures, There are no senseless questions, only inadequate answers. You have asked a good question. I think that the actor observer bias effect might not be as much when actors and observers are more similar than they are different. What has not garnered as much research interest as I would like is how actor observer bias operates within different cultural environments. I think we would all be interested in how culture shapes this attributional process and why cultural similarities and differences occur.
1: And also too, do you feel as if there's a way that we need to even explain particular events to help others better relate to or understand them? As in... Are there certain descriptors that we should by default include? Or maybe it's worthwhile to even try to ask them if they've experienced similar situations to jog their memory and help them be able to better relate to us and the many factors that could be at play in so many of our experiences.
0: Yes. um, I think we need to explain some events to help others better relate or understand the events. Humanizing one another will help. We can do this by having open communication, sharing common experiences and values, doing this using humor, politically correct humor, not having a holier-than-thou or condescending attitude, admitting that we too make mistakes and learn from these.
1: And do you think awareness of this bias can help us be more mindful of ourselves too? You kind of almost touched on it earlier, but in other words, in better understanding that both the situation and ourselves or our own behaviors are likely contributors to a circumstance or a certain outcome, or is the end result of being aware of this concept that we'll just be able to be more sympathetic and empathetic and understanding of and to others?
0: We can be better at understanding ourselves as well as the role of our attitude and behavior when we interact with others. And we can show more empathy to others and to ourselves. Many of us are too tough, not only on others, but also on ourselves.
1: And how do you feel being aware of actor-observer bias impacts your own relationships?
0: As Eckhart Tolle says, awareness is the greatest agent for change. Personally, I feel that if I am aware of this particular bias, the actor observer bias, I can work towards being the best mother, sister and professor, researcher, colleague, friend, member of the various organizations I belong to and Human being that I can be.
1: It's interesting because I know you've already explained that we all naturally have some degree of bias, but. When it comes to actor-observer bias, I don't know how much I actually display of this. And I know this is very biased coming from me, but I feel as if I can be so hard on myself that I tend to blame me in situations that go awry or that don't work in my favor. And even as I'm troubleshooting, I feel as if I do so oftentimes in a way where I critique myself and what I could have done differently or what next time I have to do differently. And I almost beat up myself in a lot of situations. And I suppose I don't necessarily communicate that way, in terms of sharing my experiences with others. So, maybe in a protective manner or for a protective reason, I do feel as if I probably remember to include other contributing factors to explain maybe why I'm running late to dinners or grabbing Mm -hmm. drinks. But overall, I do feel as if I tend to really guilt trip myself. So if I'm running late to said dinner on my way there, I'll be reprimanding myself and scolding myself and fixated on what I could have done differently. And then by the time I show up, I'll maybe make it a bit gentler where I'll explain the other factors and the other reasons why I am late. However, when other people have the same thing happen and that when they show up late, I feel as if I by default think of the many other circumstances or explanations that could rationalize their being late. It's to the point where when they even share their reason, I've already thought of a million and one other ones that could also support it. And I can be so harsh and almost overly judgmental to myself as the actor versus even the observer who then I tend to be a little softer with and a bit more empathetic or understanding of. With that said, there are some chronically tardy people that I automatically believe it's just them as an individual versus any other reason. So maybe it's that I channel all of my actor-observer bias to them specifically. And to my one friend listening, who when I first moved to California, she explained that Californians are always late. So she would always be late practically to everything. She knows who she is. However, her personality is great enough that I tolerate it, but still... It's just interesting because in hearing all of this, once again, I know it's ingrained in us to have some level of bias and it's why it's so important for us to be aware of it so that we can control how we're processing it or perhaps letting it affect our behaviors and interactions with others. But when it comes to actor-observer bias, I do truly think that I almost skew towards being a bit more hypercritical or almost working inversely to the description of the bias type. So it's been fascinating hearing this and even thinking of myself and how I am in a lot of situations in comparison. Beautifully
0: explained. <laughs> I love your illustration, right. but again, you need not be hard on yourself.
1: True, true. It's something I'm trying to do. It's something I'm working on constantly. I'm not there yet, but one day I will be. We all
0: are working at it.
1: True, true. All right. And so, Mom, I think we're ready for today's quote. We are ready for the quote corner. Maybe our listeners can help us come up with a name so that it's something that's a bit catchier than just quote corner.
0: (laughs) Okay, then. I would like to leave us with this quote from economics.com. E-C-O-N-O-W-M-I-C-S dot related to today's topic, bias, and more specifically, actor-observer bias. We are very good lawyers for our own mistakes, but very good judges for the mistakes of others. That is all for now. Thank you for spending time with us.
1: Yes, we want to hear from you. Give us feedback on what you heard today and suggestions for topics you would like us to discuss in future episodes. You can email us at catchingcurveballs at gmail.com. That's catching curveballs at gmail.com, all one word. And also, you can now follow us on Instagram at Catching Curveballs Podcast. That's Catching Curveballs Podcast. Be sure to share your thoughts here if it's easier than email and keep an eye out for upcoming episode topics.
0: We cannot wait to connect with you soon.